Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jeremy Darling, who's a professor of astrophysics at the University of Colorado Boulder. He studies black holes, galaxy evolution, and cosmology, mostly using telescopes, but sometimes just by thinking. That's a good way to do it, Jeremy. Thank you. <laughs> so um, I want to start with um, uh, one of your earlier papers entitled Toward a Direct Measurement of the Cosmic Acceleration, in which you say the measurement of secular redshift drift can directly determine the cosmic acceleration and the history of expansion in a model independent manner and has recently been explored in the context of dark energy and large aperture optical telescopes. So what is secular redshift drift? Uh, so we, to talk about that, we need to go back to the basic idea of the universe is expanding. Yeah. Um, and we call that the Hubble expansion because Edwin Hubble uh, discovered this expansion. Um, and the idea is that we're in an expanding universe. The space between galaxies is growing. Uh, and so galaxies are moving apart from each other, just like in say a rising dough uh, sprinkled with raisins. Yeah. If the galaxies are raisins, they're all moving away from each other. Um, but if you put anything into the universe, stuff like matter or even light or energy, it creates gravity that slows down that expansion. Hmm. And so for a long time, decades, it was thought that the universe's expansion should be slowing down because gravity is pulling things back together. It's just as if you throw a ball up in the air, it may be moving away from you, but it's slowing down because of gravity. Um, and so the ideas uh, proposed uh, quite a long time ago by Alan Sandage was that if you could measure the recession velocities of galaxies, that's their the expansion velocity, um, and you can measure it over time, you should see it decrease. Hmm. So you should see a deceleration of the universe. And that's what we call the cosmological redshift. It's just that the light coming to us from distant galaxies gets stretched out because the universe is expanding, it gets redshifted. Yeah. Um, but we should see that redshift decrease. That was the thought. Mm. 
And that's what we mean by a secular uh, redshift drift. Secular just means constant or steady over time. Okay. Um, then dark energy was discovered, which <laughs> threw a, whole, a wrench into the whole works. And what we have learned since is that dark energy is causing the universe to accelerate instead of decelerate. And remember, if you put anything in the universe, including regular energy or matter, it causes a deceleration. The dark energy has this very counterintuitive uh, way of causing the universe to accelerate. So it's accelerating the expansion, but only recently. Mm. Um, but the, still, the method that we're talking about still applies, is that if I could measure uh, the velocities of galaxies very, very precisely, and then maybe wait 10 years and measure them again, depending on how far away they are, they'll either show us an acceleration or a deceleration. And this is a way to measure what's in the universe, how its expansion is changing without having a concrete model uh, for the universe. So that's what we mean by a model independent measurement. Okay, so, so drift here is uh, really the, the change in redshift. That's correct. And so, um, and so uh, uh, dark energy recently, in a, in a dark energy dominated universe, we find that the universe is accelerating. Um, so, so this would imply that the redshift is increasing? It should increase, that's right. Okay. And, and so is that what we are finding, though, either from the measurements? Um, so we have not been able yet to measure this effect. Mm. It's a tiny effect. And to get a gauge for how small it is, um, you can ask uh, over what time period does the universe change dramatically? And that's roughly the age of the universe. Yeah. Um, so if I lived a very long time, say a billion years, I could see the universe changing over my lifespan. Uh, but we don't live that long. We live for only maybe a hundred years if we're lucky. <laughs> And so we can substitute that sort of longevity for precision of measurement. But to make the measurement, we need to, if, if say we wanna make the measurement in one year instead of a billion years, we need to be making measurements that are good to about a part per billion or better. Mm. Um, so we need to measure the redshifts or the velocities of galaxies extremely, extremely well. And in fact, less than a centimeter per second per year is the rate at which we expect the redshift to change. So centimeter per second would be a velocity. We'd expect that to change by about one centimeter per second over the course of a year. Right. So, so the farther out we look, the higher the redshift and the, the faster uh, they are moving. So I would imagine from purely from an engineering perspective, you want to look as, as far away as possible? Not necessarily, no. no. Um, okay. It, it's a little complicated, but it turns out that if I look at somewhat nearby galaxies, sort of medium redshift, uh, we'll see that acceleration caused by dark energy. But if I look at very high redshift, very distant galaxies early in the universe, they will be decelerating because at that time, dark energy didn't matter too much. Oh, I see, yeah. Um, so the universe went through different stages in its life. And early on, it was matter dominated where the gravity was winning. But now today it's dark energy dominated where the dark energy is winning. Um, and in fact, because we go from today accelerating to in the past decelerating, there's actually a point in the universe's history where it's doing neither. Hmm. It's right in between uh, going from decelerating to accelerating. So, so for this particular measurement, Jeremy, is there a sort of an optimum distance you want to look at? Optimally, you would look 
uh, at sort of galaxies maybe halfway back to the Big Bang yeah. um, to measure dark energy. And then you'd look at galaxies uh, much closer to the Big Bang to measure the deceleration. So there's, there's two uh, sort of distances that one would want to use. And we are using sort of the same instruments that we use to measure redshift? Yes, you can. Um, and in fact, uh, folks are planning uh, to make this sort of measurement. It'll take decades, but using upcoming 30 meter aperture um, optical telescopes on the ground. Uh, this is one of their science cases that they're making. Um, and what they'll do is measure um, clouds, in fact, between galaxies, measure the redshifts and monitor them over a few decades. Uh, but, but the status quo, Jeremy, is that there isn't much doubt, right, that the universe is expanding and dark energy is causing it? That's correct. But we don't know what the dark energy is, uh, yeah. and we don't really know how it works. Um, we're starting to constrain um, its properties. We call that the equation of state, but it's just its basic properties. Um, but in general, uh, what one the way we study dark energy now is to look at things we call standard candles or standard rulers in cosmology, where if I know how bright something is and I measure how bright it looks, I can figure out how far away it is. That would be a standard candle. And those things are, are very handy. That, that's what has revealed the existence of dark energy. Um, but they all have their own uh, specific issues in terms of um, possible systematic effects, and they also rely on something we call the cosmic distance ladder, where we sort of build up rungs of this ladder going step by step, uh, but it's a rickety ladder. And so the idea behind the redshift drift measurement is we can skip all that stuff, and we're just making a direct measurement of what the universe is up to dynamically. Hmm. Okay. So, so you have a paper here that is sort of related. Uh, the Hubble expansion is isotropic, in the epoch of dark energy. Um, you say the isotropy of the universal Hubble expansion is a fundamental tenet of physical cosmology, but it has not been uh, precisely tested during the current epoch when dark energy is dominant. Uh, we talked about a little bit about that. So so the, the, the puzzle, I don't know if it's a puzzle anymore, but um, at least the question is, why is it so uniform? Is that the question? That is the question. Um, and we, until recently, have had to assume that the universe is sort of the same in every direction, and it's also expanding at the same rate in every direction. Yeah. Um, but that's that has been a built-in assumption. That's changed a little since that paper was written. Uh, but the idea there was to, to just look around the sky, and if the universe is expanding anisotropically, in other words, not the same in every direction, um, isotropic means iso, same, tropic direction, so if the universe is not expanding in the, at the same rate in every direction, what you'll see is galaxies streaming toward the directions of faster expansion and away from the directions of slower expansion. Hmm. Um, and so that's what this uh, work was looking for, was to see if we see these streaming motions, galaxies moving across the sky instead of strictly away from us, which would indicate that there's places in the universe that are moving away faster than others. And, um, and and did we find any 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 such phenomenon? No, um, and there have been some studies since using supernovae. That's uh, those are standard candles once again, exploding stars, but they have a specific brightness. 
yeah. people have examined those as well and not seen any such effect. So it looks like down to maybe uh, 5% or so um, that the universe is expanding at the same rate in all directions. And this is interesting because dark energy doesn't have to do that. Uh, there are models for dark energy that could give us some directionality. So, so the this is not explained by inflation, right? Per se. Um, that's correct. So, inflation happened in a very, very early universe, um, and the expansion today is is unrelated to that. Okay, and so. Um, so, so the reason, so when we see this um, so consistent, um, what, what, <laughs> uh, so what, what's causing it? Is, is there a, uh, does this come out of the standard model or does it create some questions? Um, the isotropy? Yeah, the isotropy. Yeah, it's, it's sort of what you would expect um, in a universe that has no preferred locations or directions. Um, we assume we're not in a special place in the universe, and we also assume that there are no special places at all anywhere. Um, and under that assumption, if the universe were not expanding at the same rate everywhere, you would wind up with special places and not so special places because there'd be regions that empty out and regions that concentrate. Right. Okay. Okay. So we, we can make basic observations today, just say counting galaxies. And if you take a big enough patch of the universe, it looks the same as other equally sized patches. Um, right. And that would also not be true if the universe had been for a while expanding anisotropically or differently in different directions. Um, but dark energy only took over recently, so it's possible dark energy could be could be doing something interesting or strange. So, so Jeremy, it is true that we are at the center of the universe. <laughs> it is true that we're the center of the universe, and everywhere is the center of the universe. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Uh, so, so I want to jump into another paper. Uh, uh, 2017, uh, how to detect inclined water maser disks, and you say, and possibly measure black hole masses. So, so what exactly is a is a maser? What's a water maser disk? <laughs> yeah, a, a maser is a microwave laser. I think people yeah. are pretty familiar with lasers, uh, and a maser just the M just stands for microwave instead of light. Um, so it's just a different form of, of laser, but masers can occur naturally in, in nature, in space, in fact, in, in uh, the medium between stars and also in stars, in the atmospheres of stars. There's even a, um, an infrared type maser in the Martian atmosphere caused mm -hmm. by carbon monoxide. Um, but so it's a similar phenomenon that we're used to with lasers in the fact, in the sense that masers, when they occur naturally, they can make a beam of light that comes out of some gas um, and if you happen to be looking in the right direction, it looks incredibly bright. Um, you know, you shouldn't, as we know, you shouldn't look at a laser directly um, because it concentrates so much light uh, that you can deliver too much energy to your retina. Um, yeah. With telescopes, it's fine for us to look directly at lasers. So um, it's mostly molecules that make these uh, microwave lasers in space. And one of the most prodigious Maser maker is actually water, water vapor in space. But this is a this is a microwave, so we won't be able to see it. That's correct. But the um, frequency at which this maser occurs is exactly the same frequency that your microwave oven uses to heat food, mm. because your microwave oven is exciting water molecules in your food. 
Um, and that's exactly the same process uh, that causes these natural lasers in space. So if the, so, so you, the, the water uh, could create, so you, you talked about Mars, uh, where carbon, carbon dioxide causes uh, the maser-like phenomenon. Here, you're looking at water doing the same? That's correct. And so how, what's the connection to the, the black hole uh, masses here? So is this, are, are we talking about uh, closer to the center of the galaxy? Yes, so there's a, a famous um, nearby galaxy. Um, let me step back. So galaxies, typically, we think most galaxies have massive black holes in their centers. So each galaxy has a very large black hole in its center, more or less. Um, and there's a, a famous nearby case where in the disk of material that's orbiting that black hole, very close to the black hole, is water vapor, and it's making these uh, water masers, these lasers in space, um, that illuminate for us this disk orbiting that black hole. And if I can observe any material orbiting a black hole, um, I can use just the sort of basic way that we, for example, measure the mass of the sun by looking at the orbits of the planets. We can measure the mass of the black hole by looking at material that's orbiting it. And these water masers just make it very straightforward to do that and are also uh, give a very precise way to measure the mass of the black hole. So um, is the water vapor acting more like a prism or a lens or something like that here? Um, it is not. It is excited, so it, it excites internally. Um, and then when it de-excites, it emits this very specific frequency for the maser. And then that frequency find that light that's emitted finds another water molecule that's ready to go, that's excited, and causes it to de-excite. This is called stimulated emission. Um, and that's part of the laser acronym. Uh, lasers stand for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. That's what the word laser comes from. So you have one photon coming out of a, a water molecule that finds another water molecule and you get two photons out where one came in and each of those photons will then go and find a water molecule and I go from two to four and so on. So I keep doubling the number of, of uh, photons or light and that's how you make this sort of cascade that creates this very unusual um, natural maser in space. And uh, the, uh, and the reason, uh, how could we measure the the the, uh, the mass of a black hole from there? Yeah. So what we do is we look at these very what they look like to a telescope, a radio telescope, a very bright spots. Um, but you yeah. can also they're very narrow in frequency, so they're monochromatic, just like a laser. Like a red laser is very red; it's one color of red. Um, so we can measure these um, the frequency and the position and by measuring the frequency, we can measure the Doppler shift or the velocity of these masers. And by measuring how fast things are moving around an object, we can measure the mass of that object by just doing orbital uh, dynamics. So Newton could have done this. Um, and so we, we watch this water vapor circling the black hole and by seeing how fast it moves and how far it is from the black hole, then we can measure the mass of the black hole. Mm. Yeah, it just, uh, it's counterintuitive to think about water vapor <laughs> near a black hole. Yes. Yes. Well, but it is. Yeah, water is a hardy molecule. You know, there's water in sunspots. Mm. There's water vapor in sunspots on our sun because it's just cool enough that you can form that molecule, even though it's 5,000 Kelvin. <laughs>
and, and so have we done this for um, the supermassive black hole we have at the center of uh, the Milky Way galaxy? We have not. Um, we use stars for that. So people have observed, and in fact, this was the subject of this year's physics Nobel Prize, is yeah. two investigators, um, one in the States and one in Germany, observed stars orbiting the black hole in the center of our galaxy in order to, one, measure the mass of the black hole, but more importantly, to prove without a doubt that black holes exist. Um, our black hole on the Milky Way does not have these water masers or water vapor orbiting it. And, and so uh, the way, where you have done this is um, somewhat distant galaxies or where have you? Yeah, that's right. Um, so people have been searching for these, these water maser uh, disks around black holes for a few decades now. And they found um, maybe a dozen of these. Um, the work that you're talking about uh, that I did is, is not to find new ones, but to show that in fact, that water maser, if it's behind the black hole, can be gravitationally lensed. So the gravity of the black hole will bend the light of that maser. So you think of a laser beam being bent, it'll bend that light and send it our way. And so we can actually see um, these uh, masers in a wider variety of circumstances um, than what people have seen so far. Okay, so do we have any different expectations uh, of the galaxy or the black hole where we find this? Since you're not finding them uh, in high frequency, right? You're finding only on a dozen places. Yes, so um, we think that you need very special geometry. You think, we think that you need to be able to see this orbiting material. It orbits in a disk around the black hole. And we think that you have to be able to view that disk nearly edge on. Um, so imagine holding a record and instead of looking at the record face on, you hold it very edge on, so it looks very thin. Um, so we think there's a geometry that's required. So we don't think that these are necessarily so rare, uh, but that you have to get very lucky in terms of their orientation as seen by us. Okay, so just a perspective. Um, so it has to be arranged in such a way that we can actually see that's it. Right. Um, and, and so, so, so again, but, but still it doesn't seems sort of a small number, right? It is a small number. And, and this is a dozen with what we would call very organized disks of material. We found water masers near black holes in many other circumstances, uh, but only a few that are so well organized that you can make these orbital measurements to measure the black hole mass. Okay. Okay. We'll take a we'll take a quick break, Jeremy. When we come back, we'll talk about a couple of your uh, newer papers. Okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast, providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, Jeremy, we are talking about um, a few of your previous papers in terms of the expansion of the universe uh, and even uh, how to measure the, the mass of a black hole using uh, water mason disks. Uh, I want to go into a couple of your uh, recent papers, and one of them is extragalactic proper motions, gravitational waves, and cosmology. 
Uh, you say review, uh, we review the cosmological and local phenomena uh, revealed by correlated extragalactic proper motions, their expected amplitudes, the current best measurement, uh, and predictions of Gaia. Gaia is the ESA satellite, right? That's correct. Uh, so what is a what is a prop? What do you mean by proper motion? A proper motion is is an astronomer's strange term of motion that is across the sky, instead yeah. of directly toward or away from us. Okay. Okay. And so um, that motion allows us to uh, to think about gravitational waves. Yeah, that's right. So. Um, People have probably heard about LIGO, the, the gravitational wave detector that was incredibly successful over the last few years. What LIGO does is measures the stretching and squeezing of space-time caused by gravitational waves. Gravitational waves are ripples of space-time caused by, for example, uh, merging black holes. And um, so people are used to, or they're now used to the idea that space-time will stretch and squeeze um, and sort of shrink and uh, stretch a physical distance. Um, what gravitational waves also do though, is wiggle things back and forth. And so if I look out at a distant object in the universe, like a quasar um, or a black hole or any bright object, if a gravitational wave were to pass by and I could measure it carefully enough, I would see that distant object wiggle back and forth. Yeah. Um, as the space time itself bends or stretches and squeezes, it will cause a distant object's light to follow a different path um, from the one in a sort of a, a non-bending space. And so what it looks like to us, it would be um, objects, if you look at many objects all across the sky, is they will uh, move back and forth a little bit across the sky in a very regular pattern. Okay, and so so proper motion again. So this is something that is sort of moving perpendicular to our line of sight. That's exactly right. Yes. Okay, and so 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 that that movement um, that is, is, uh, makes it easier for us to measure this this wiggle. Is that the idea? Um, the measurement is difficult, um, but it we can make the measurement uh, of a part of the gravitational spectrum that is not available to other facilities. So just like the electromagnetic spectrum, the spectrum of light that goes from X-rays all the way to radio waves and includes visible light, gravitational waves also have this huge spectrum um, where they can have many different wavelengths or frequencies or energies. And the LIGO experiment uh, looks at a very specific, fairly high frequency gravitational waves and as we move to lower and lower frequencies, you need different techniques for seeing these gravitational waves. And this method of looking at proper motions, so the motions of distant objects moving around on the sky uh, is very sensitive to very low frequency or very long wavelength gravitational waves. In fact, all the way down to wavelengths that are about the size of the observable universe. Wow. And so, so these are, um, so these are very heavy objects. So supermassive black holes merging or something like that? It's uh, So supermassive black hole mergers would be uh, hopefully detected by a facility that's upcoming called LISA, mm -hmm. which is a space-based LIGO, space-based gravitational wave detector. 
that would be sensitive to low frequency gravitational waves caused by uh, merging supermassive black holes. This method of proper motions goes even lower than LISA. Um, so it's looking for gravitational waves not caused by black holes anymore, but caused by the very early universe. So it's thought that in the very early universe, there was a process called inflation that caused the universe to grow very rapidly um, that may also leave gravitational waves from the early universe that are just rippling through space-time um, all the time. And so uh, this proper motion method would be sensitive to those types of gravitational waves from the very, very early universe. Okay, so this this could be sort of an alternative um, to the um, the polarization technique that was used to to get again uh, inflation from the south pole. Yes, that's right. So um, the other technique to measure these same gravitational waves is using the cosmic microwave background yeah. polarization. So the cosmic microwave background is that glow from the early universe, and that light is expected to be polarized, and the polarization can reveal. Um, on certain sort of size scales on the sky, it can reveal also that same primordial gravitational wave uh, background from inflation. That's right. And so, uh, so this again, if we are successful here, I don't know what the status of this is, uh, Jeremy, but, but if you're successful here, this, this would prove um, inflation? I think it, if you were to detect these gravitational waves, um, because there's no other method that we know to make them, it would probably provide very strong support for inflation, yes. Yeah. And where are we in terms of um, these measurements? Um, they have been made. Uh, we did not detect any gravitational wave signal mm -hmm. yet. Um, I expect that they will continue to get better incrementally over the next um, 10 years or so. Uh, and then at that point, if we haven't detected them yet, I think it will become extremely difficult to do much better. And so then um, it, it sort of casts some doubt on inflation again, potentially. It, it doesn't really. So inflation is, is not a theory, but it's a huge family of theories. Yeah. And there are, mode, there are types of inflation that make a lot of very strong gravitational waves, and there are some that, that make a much lower sort of energy in gravitational waves. Um, so what this could potentially do is rule out some inflation theories, but not all inflation theories. Okay. And the, the measurements here are all from Gaia or from some other sources? Uh, the, uh, the paper that's been published combined Gaia observations, which is visible light, and radio observations using the very long baseline array, which is a collection of radio telescopes uh, that roughly span the size of the Earth. So we synthesize a telescope that is roughly the size of the Earth to get very high um, precision in measuring where things are. Okay. And uh, guys, still operating, right? So you, you are expected to get more data? Yes, yes. And part of that uh, publication you were talking about makes predictions for how well Gaia will do when uh, it reaches the end of its mission. In a, in a few years, you said? That's right. Okay, so I want to jump into another paper, Jeremy. So this is entitled New Limits on Axionic Dark Matter from the Magnetar PSR 11, uh, PSR 1745 to 2900. You, you have to come up with better names, Jeremy. <laughs> sure. 
Yeah, technical papers, yes. Yeah. So a magnetar is is a neutron star, right? With with very high levels of magnetism. Is that the way to think about it? That's right, yes. Yeah, go ahead. It's a it's a collapsed core of a of a massive star, um, we call a neutron star. And neutron stars, when they're born, they tend to spin rapidly, and they also have very strong magnetic fields. And there's an exclusive subset of these called magnetars that have truly outrageous magnetic fields. Mm. Um, so they're the most highly magnetized objects that we know of in the universe. And and they're spinning rapidly. Fairly rapidly. Um, so the magnetar uh, that's the subject of this work is is not so fast. I think it spins maybe uh, once every three seconds. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and so um, so dark matter, um, there is still uh, we still don't really know what it is. Um, generally speaking, five percent of the universe is uh, matter that we know. Twenty five percent or so is what's called dark matter, and the seventy percent is dark energy. So that 25% of the dark matter, there are a lot of different ideas, different candidates, what might be, uh, what might be dark matter. And uh, this is looking into one of those candidates? That's correct, yes. So what's, a, what's an axion? Um, so an axion is a particle that is a good dark matter candidate. Uh, there are a handful of, of different dark matter candidate particles. Uh, Generally, people think that, not all, but generally people think that uh, dark matter is a particle instead of, say, rocks or failed stars or something else. Um, and there are different classes of particles. The axion is one. Uh, I like axions because they were predicted to exist decades ago to solve another problem in physics, um, which is related to the neutron. Uh, the neutron. Uh, as your listeners may know, is made of three quarks of different charges. Whenever I have a collection of particles together that aren't sitting on top of each other that have different charges, I should have some sort of charge distribution inside that object. Mm. And so the neutron should have what we call an uh, electric dipole moment. In Mm. other words, one side of the neutron should be negatively charged, one side should be positively charged. Uh, But in laboratory experiments, they found, in fact, no electric dipole moment in the neutron. And this is called the strong charge parity problem or strong CP problem. And the way out of this is to uh, more or less create a particle called the axion. (laughs) If the axion exists, it explains why the neutron does what it does and why it has no uh, charge distribution. (laughs) So the axion is predicted to exist by to solve this particle physics problem. Very recently, uh, some uh, theorists uh, realized that the axion could potentially also explain why there is matter in the universe. In the very early universe, we had roughly equal parts matter and antimatter, um, but about one part per billion extra matter. And so when when matter finds antimatter, it annihilates and makes light, makes energy. And so we had a billion parts of matter and a billion parts of antimatter annihilate each other and make up two billion photons. And there was one tiny little piece of matter left over and that's the material world we see around us today. Mm -hmm. Um, And that little imbalance 
explained, but it turns out that axions might be the explanation. So if axions exist, they solve two big physics problems. And one's pretty profound, which is why are we even here? Why do we live in a universe that has any material in it rather than just light? Hmm. Um, so that's why I like the axion. And the other thing is that if the axion exists, then it would also be produced in the early universe in abundance. And so it could also be dark matter. So, so how does, so is it, is it a quark-like thing? It's, it's a fundamental thing, right? That's right. It's a fundamental particle, um, but it is not a quark. Um, it, uh, one of the properties of dark matter is that it makes gravity because it has a mass. So the axion has mass. Yeah. Um, the other property of dark matter is that it doesn't interact well with light. That's why we call it dark. So um, axions do that as well. They interact incredibly weakly with light. And so, so what's the action inside the neutron to, to, make, to, to make that dipole expectation not realized? Uh, that's a little complicated. <laughs> it's called the, uh, <laughs> the, the uh, Quinn-Pecci mechanism. Yeah. And uh, it just has to, it's, uh, it's, it's, really, it's fairly complicated, but it has to do with what are called mixing angles. Yeah. Um, and basically you need this angle in there to be very close to zero. And there's no natural way to explain that unless you have a particle that's basically its job is to do that. Uh, so, but we cannot really experimentally prove its existence, right? Can we? Uh, there are experiments underway to try to detect the axion. Okay either through detecting it as a dark matter particle or creating it, either way will work. Yeah. Um, there's a, a really fun, brilliant experiment going on right now. Um, and to explain that, I need to mention how axions actually do interact is they interact with light, but very weakly. Mm -hmm. And they only interact when there are two photons involved, mm -hmm. two particles of light. And typically what that means is you need a very strong magnetic field and if the axion passes through that strong magnetic field, it can be converted into light. Uh, or you can have, you can shine very strong light through a strong magnetic field and you may make some axions. Um, there's an ex, go ahead. No, no, so, so just for my own understanding. So, so you need a strong magnetic field and the presence of two photons for an axion to, to be converted into three photons? Uh, no, so you need the strong magnetic field provides one effective photon because okay. remember electromagnetism is yeah. light. Um, so we need a, a magnetic field and in fact an electric field, but basically it's it's two photons can become an axion mm. uh, or an axion and a photon can become, can uh, allow that axion to transform into a third, a second photon, sorry. Okay. Um, but basically uh, the magnetic field is providing one of those photons. And, and so yeah. when an axion encounters a strong magnetic field, it can either become a photon or a photon encounters a strong magnetic field, it can become an axion. Okay, okay. Uh, but, but do we have an estimate of, uh, we still have to explain 25% of the mass. So do we have an ex estimate of its, uh, you know, its frequency and its mass? Um, we don't. So the interesting thing about the axion is it's predicted that if it exists, it will be made in abundance in the early universe and can account for the dark matter. Yeah. However, you could have many axions um, that are light 
or you could have fewer axions that are heavier. And the theory does not predict the mass of the axion, uh, which has been its the trouble with detecting it is people don't know where to look. Okay. Yeah. And so um, the two varieties, uh, they, they are orders of magnitude different in terms of masses? Um, so it's a continuous, oh, okay. big open range of, of possible axion masses. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, um, so in conclusion, Jeremy, so you see, look forward. Uh, I know that you're involved in a lot of this, a uh, lot of these experiments. Uh, there's still nagging questions around dark matter and dark energy. Uh, what what is your sort of expectations in five to ten years um, where we are going to be? Uh, in terms of understanding it better? I, so we'll start with dark energy. Yeah. I am not optimistic about that. Um, what astronomers are, and physicists are doing right now is narrowing and narrowing down the, the parameters of dark energy. Um, but I don't see us really coming to grips with what it is or why it's there. Um, so I think we will soon have a very tight constraint on its properties. Yeah. Um, and it's like, we'll have the outline of the elephant, but we know, won't know that it is an elephant or why it's there. So it, it um, could trace back all the way to the Big Bang. So it becomes sort of a feature of the Big Bang? Uh, no, no, in fact, dark energy, it, it only arises, it, it's been, a, we think if it is uh, what we call a cosmological constant, it's been around forever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it would be something, some property of the vacuum. So if I had a vacuum, a pit of space with nothing in it, it should have some dark energy. Um, so sort of some sort of fundamental property of space-time itself. And it only becomes important when the universe gets big enough, which is recently. Mm -hmm. So it's a property of the balloon, but it just, it just shows up when the balloon gets to some size. And <laughs> not the good not that I it only it only becomes important yep. um, so you have to have a certain amount of empty space for this tiny amount of energy to matter right and, and it's a it's a runaway process right so once we once once it starts to accelerate it's going to continue to increase that acceleration right that's correct yes and it unless it is some field that decays and goes away yeah. Uh, it should drive all galaxies apart from all other galaxies. And if you live sometime in the future, you would see a big empty universe. Cosmology will be a lot easier then. <laughs> or very boring, yes. <laughs> and, and, and what do you think about the dark matter? Are we making progress there? I think we are. And I, I think uh, this is where I'm more optimistic. I think that somebody soon is going to find at least a dark matter particle. There may be more than one. But I really think something will be found in the next decade. And uh, Axion, as you mentioned, uh, is the one that you like as a leading candidate. What are the other uh, leading contenders for it? Uh, the other main contender that's been most favored for quite some time is called the WIMP, the Weakly Interacting Massive Particle. Um, so weakly interacting means it works through the weak force. That's how it interacts with other particles. Um, but the parameter space, the area that we you could search for WIMPs is, is slowly being whittled down. And I 
uh, I think that fairly soon, um, physicists especially will either find it or decide that's not it. Um, yeah. There is some sort of experiment going on to, to detect it, but we haven't found any yet, right? That's right. There are many experiments happening right yeah. now. Yeah. And so it's, it's almost like the race is to find, <laughs> find one. Uh, whoever finds it uh, will have a have a great advantage to establish that is what's uh, what dark matter is. But I guess it has to fit the parameter space pretty well, right? Because we have an aggregate expectation of what that should look like. That's right, and we also know that this this dark matter particle is going to be outside of what's called the standard model of particle physics. So it's not some known particle. I think not only finding this and solving this mystery will be exciting, but uh, this will change particle physics once it's found. What do you think, will it make it easier to uh, get gravity in, um, into some kind of comprehensive uh, framework or it will make it more complicated? I think it could, it will only help uh, for us to to expand on the standard model and to, we found these cracks in it and to have at least one piece of the puzzle uh, will, can only help uh, in terms of uniting other quantum mechanics of gravity. Okay. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Jeremy. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Of course, thank you very yeah, much. Good luck with this research. Oh, thank you.